Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Keeping note at the top on Wednesday, we will be hosting our launch of the 2023 Index of uh, Military uh, readiness. And so I just wanted to make sure everybody knew about that event. It starts at noon, and you'll all be very welcome to join us for that important occasion. I also wanted to very quickly say a very strong word of thanks to my dear colleague, Jim Carafano, who has been leading this effort very ably on the part of Heritage. And one other person who will be joining us over the course of today, uh, who's not yet here, but I think is going to be a very important presence, is Ludovic Hood, who uh, I know because he served on the National Security Council staff uh, with me during the Trump administration, but he is currently serving as the senior advisor to the special uh, envoy for, to monitor and combat anti-Semitism at the State Department. So I think his presence is a very important demonstration that this is not a partisan issue. This is an American issue that we all need to get after. And certainly in the days after October 7th, I think we've all been shocked uh, by the degree of anti-Semitism that has been revealed here in the United States. Uh, I believe we've seen a 300 percent increase in these in these incidents. And, you know, any increase would be unconscionable. But that kind of increase, I think, really does put it starkly in front of us, the problem that we face. And so I'm very pleased to kick us off today by introducing a very dear friend of Heritage, uh, Pastor Mario Abramnik, who uh, comes to us from, of course, the great state of Florida. He graduated from the University of Miami with his BA and then also with his uh, JD and has been, of course, a distinguished practicing lawyer. But he is here with us today in his role as the president of the Latino Coalition for Israel, which I think is a wonderful initiative that shows us, despite all of the challenges that we face, that new partnerships, new coalitions are coming together that really can strengthen our efforts. And I also wanted to note that uh, Governor DeSantis has appointed Pastor uh, Bromnick to serve on the Florida Faith-Based and Community-Based Advisory Council. Again, such an important initiative to bring together people of faith to strengthen the policies that will make a better America. So with that, I'd like again to welcome you and introduce Pastor Bromnick. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Victoria Coates and the Heritage Foundation uh, for doing a phenomenal job in hosting us. I want to thank our colleagues and chairs, James Carafano, who's taking the charge for Heritage, has been working uh, for many years in combating anti-Semitism, our dear friend Ellie Kohanim and Luke Moon, uh, part of the chairs of this national task force. Since the horrific atrocities committed by Hamas against innocent Israeli babies, children, men and women, and the start of the Israeli-Hamas war, we have witnessed an alarming rise in anti-Semitic incidences in the United States. Pro-Hamas rallies with upwards of almost hundreds of thousands of participants across our nation. 
the unveiling of the vehemently anti-Israel indoctrination and vitriol from college campuses and universities, which has given rise to more than 400% increase in anti-Semitism since the onset of the war. The situation in America is explosive and unfortunately looks like it's going to get worse. As a result of what we see happening on the ground, we are launching this national task force to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Our vision is to coalesce institutional Christian and Jewish organizational leaders to monitor the current and future rise of anti-Semitic trends, establish metrics and joint action items to combat the rise of anti-Semitism and establish a coalition to defend the Jewish people and to provide a firewall to counter this rise of anti-Semitism in America. The objective of the task force is to link together organizations to facilitate information sharing, crisis response, establish working groups to develop action plans for the next 12 months and beyond, identifying, highlighting, combating malicious activities and actors directing and significantly contributing to this anti-Semitic activity in the United States so that no American would be harmed by this kind of hatred. Jewish students are living in terror, harassed, assaulted, and attacked on our college campuses. The calling for genocide of Jews is now acceptable by presidents of our Ivy League institutions. Jews, who only make up 2.4% of the American population, account for approximately 60% of religious-based hate crimes. The terrifying pattern of anti-Semitism has been relentless since this Israeli-Hamas war on October 7, with no signs of diminishing. Jewish communities across our country reporting acts of violence, intimidation, abuse, physical and verbal. Acts of anti-Semitism are unfortunately now a new normal. It seems as if we're living on the eve of World War II. The dimensions are enormous and incomprehensible. And part of this task force is to adopt a zero-tolerance approach to this new wave of anti-Semitism in America. Anti-Semitism isn't just anti-Jewish, it is anti-Christian, anti-American, anti-Western, driven by unholy alliance between radical progressive leftists and Islamists who hate our Judeo-Christian values, who hate our nation and who hate our religious liberties, which have been the foundation of our nation since its inception. We are seeing unholy alliance, strange bedfellows, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian Islamists aligning with BLM, Antifa, LBGTQ plus progressive leftists. And unfortunately, we're also seeing a rise of anti-Semitism on the right. Those with different endgames bent on the destruction of Israel and quite frankly, on the destruction of our nation. With these unholy alliances, it's time to establish what we're establishing here, which is a holy alliance united against common value, decency, and the protection of our Judeo-Christian values. Our vision simply states that we, the National Task Force to Combat Anti-Semitism, hereby commit ourselves to combating hatred of the Jewish people in our country and around the world. We affirm the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism 
anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, rhetorical and physical manifestation of anti-Semitism are directed against Jewish and non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institution and religious facility. We denounce anti-Semitism in a spirit of compassion and friendship, aware that education about the evils of this hatred is a moral responsibility for all people. We recognize that anti-Semitism in any community, including our own, demand condemnation. We recognize that anti-Semitism is a poison in any society and that threats to the Jewish people will spread to threats to Christians and to all people of conscience. We condemn any attempt to delegitimize, boycott, divest sanctions on Israel or bar Jews from participating in academic or communal association. We recognize anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are manifestations of the same hatred against the Jewish people. We affirm the right of the Jewish people to live safely and securely in their ancestral home, and that modern state of Israel is essential towards that security. At this time, it's a great honor uh, to introduce uh, 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 via um, video uh, Ronald, Ambassador Ronald Lauder, who is uh, the president of the World Jewish Congress, has done uh, tremendous work in his support of Israel and support of the Jewish people throughout the world. I am now honored to introduce to you Ambassador Lauder. It's my great honor to welcome all of you today to this very important conference at Heritage, Combating Anti-Semitism in the U.S. I'm sorry not to be there in person, and I can't thank this coalition, Heritage, enough for raising this topic. But in my heart, I wish it were not necessary in the first place. It is obvious that what we have witnessed since the unprovoked and vicious attack on Jewish civilians inside Israel on October 7th, and the hatred we have seen against the Jewish people in response to these attacks is nothing but pure hatred against Jews. On October 7th, a little over 100 days ago, waves of terrorists crossed the border into Israel to kill, rape, destroy, and kidnap civilians. But it's what we have seen afterwards that is just as shocking. Let me put this in context. Imagine anti-American protests after Pearl Harbor. Imagine tens of thousands marching for Al-Qaeda on college campuses right after 9-11. Imagine calls for a ceasefire with Nazi Germany one week after D-Day. I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is exactly what Israel has faced since October 7th. We've also witnessed a strange silence from women's groups after the mass rapes of Israeli women, old and very young. Back in 2014, when extremist Islamic terrorists kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria, First Lady Michelle Obama tweeted with a photo of her holding a sign that said, Save our girls. We have seeing no signs for Israeli victims. It's because they're Jewish. When the victims of rape and kidnapping are murdered, are Jewish, do the terrorists get a pass? And when presidents of three of our finest universities are asked in a congressional hearing if calling for the genocide of Jews violates the school's code of conduct, they answered, 
It depends on the context. Depends on the context. Over the last two decades, there have been a concerted effort by the far left and foreign countries to push anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in our universities. We may have lost a generation, which we must aim our efforts and our energy to restoring our great universities to once they once were. And as we go forward in your conference today, remember this, the democracy and the Jewish state of Israel is the front line on the war on terror. That same war came to our shores 22 years ago on a peaceful, bright September morning. And when looking at anti-Semitism, it's very important to remember this. What begins with the Jews never ends with the Jews. All freedom-loving people everywhere eventually fall prey to those who go after the Jews first. We have a lot of work ahead of us. You have a lot of work to do today. I encourage all people of good conscience to join the National Task Force. I have absolutely no doubt that if we stand steadfast and committed to this struggle, we will win in the end. I am pleased that you will be joined today by Israel's Deputy Chief of Mission, Elav Benjamin, and former Ambassador David Friedman. Nothing is more viable than what you are doing today. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for taking on this difficult and important topic. If you want our great country to remain the bright, shining city on the hill, this is the fight we must win. Our world and the safety of our children and all we hold dear depends on it. Thank you and God bless you. Good morning. I'm Ellie Kohanim, a proud co-chair. Thank you. A proud co-chair. Thank you. Of the National Task Force to Combat Anti-Semitism in the United States and former US Deputy Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. I want to first thank Ambassador Ronald Lauder for those remarks. As you all know, Ambassador Lauder has been uh, the world's foremost um, warrior defending the Jewish people and the Jewish state of Israel, so we thank him for those remarks. It's now my pleasure to introduce the Deputy Chief of Mission of the Embassy of Israel to the United States, Eliav Benjamin, who is joining us today for a fireside chat. DCM Benjamin assumed his position in August 2022 after serving as head of the Middle East Bureau of Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Previously, DCM Eliav was extensively involved with the developing of the Abraham Accords and held positions across the foreign ministry. He is the recipient of an award of excellence for managing the International Media Center during Operation Protective Shield and served in posts in Shanghai, China, and previously in Washington, D.C. DCM Elia Benjamin, it's my honor to ask you to join us on stage. Thank you. Good morning again. And thank you. Hi, So... This is a, a difficult conversation, and, and Ambassador Lauder said one we were hoping not to have to have, but here we are. Following Hamas's October 7th uh, attack on Israel, 
in which Hamas committed indescribable atrocities against Israelis, leaving 1,200 Israelis dead. Uh, what we witnessed afterwards, before Israel had even a chance to bury their dead, was an explosion of pro-Hamas activity worldwide with an unprecedented nearly 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents right here in the United States. Elif, could you share with us and with our audience, what do you make of this unprecedented surge in anti-Semitism and how do you think we can best counter this surge? Yeah, well, hi Ali. Uh, good morning and good morning everybody. Thank you for, for having me here again. Um, under these circumstances, but this is a good initiative to, uh, uh, to be speaking at, the, the launch of the task force. And I think this task force is one very good way of, uh, of handling it and dealing with it. This, of course, uh, alongside also the, um, the administration's um, whole uh, um, initiative of uh, strategizing the strategy for combating anti-Semitism. And the more initiatives that we can see, the better. And um, much more when it comes to, uh, even more so when, when it's uh, hands-on. Um, of actually combating it in so many different uh, so many different ways. Yes, it is just inconceivable the the surge of anti-Semitism here in the states and across the globe since October seventh. It's kind of, in a strange way, kind of blaming the victim and uh, and calling on the victim for for everything that uh, that has been happening. The mere fact that um, Jews around the country that uh, Israelis around the country who are also Jewish, but not only uh, looking over their shoulder wherever they go. Um, it's not just on campuses, but yes, that is a very big place to look at. It's true for shuls, synagogues, community centers, where people are scared to go to. And it's so unfortunate that after October 7th, we're seeing such a rise in these, uh, in these numbers. People allow themselves to um, to say what they want, which is part of the great uh, part of America, freedom of speech. Um, but they go the extra mile with um, with what with the liberty that they allow themselves to to go with. You know, there are groups here that are demonstrating against uh, against Jews, demonstrating against Israel, support in support of Hamas. I don't even know what how much they're thinking about the the slogans they're using. When they're talking about from the Jordan, from the river to the sea, essentially this is calling for the annihilation of the of the Jewish state, the only Jewish state, the only safe haven for Jews in the world, outside of the United States, of course, um, for a place where people can feel safe and secure. And we're seeing this on campuses, we're seeing this in streets, we're seeing this on the mall here, we're seeing this outside um, the embassy here in Washington D.C., outside of our consulate generals across the country. And um, anything that we can do to counter this, um, the more the merrier. Yeah, and, and I just want to reflect back. Um, as, as an American Jew, uh, we are feeling it in our synagogues, in our Jewish day schools, in the Jewish community centers, as you mentioned. Uh, there is a complete sense of lack of security right now. Um, Eliav, in my term as Deputy Special Envoy to Combat Anti-Semitism, we work to encourage governments and institutions around the world to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, 
a working definition of anti-Semitism with all of the examples underneath it. The reason we did so is because the definition makes clear that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Could you comment on that notion? Is anti-Zionism indeed anti-Semitism? And if so, how should the international community address this particular form of hate? So to be clear, the answer is absolutely yes. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, period. No questions. And there should be no questions when it comes to seeing and acting on acts of uh, anti-Semitism, wherever it uh, may be, internationally, locally, domestically. And yes, the the IRA definition, uh, what's known as the IRA definition uh, of uh, of anti-Semitism, is the the working um, term that we all use and that uh, hopefully we can see more and more states across this country adopt. Not all states have yet adopted it. We hope to see all of them adopt it. We'd like to see um, uh, sports clubs adopting it, universities adopting this, um, cities across the country and across the globe. This is, it's, it all starts with defining anti-Semitism. When you know how to define it, you can then also uh, move on to the next stage and actually act on it and call out anti-Semitism wherever it comes up. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Um, Indeed, we we find even with law enforcement sometimes, uh, I'm thinking specifically the uh, Coleyville, uh, Texas synagogue uh, hostage situation where um, the FBI took some time to identify the event as an anti-Semitic hate crime. And I think it's because they, they were not clear on the definition. Today, DCM Eliyev, we are, we are launching this national task force to combat anti-Semitism in the United States. And part of the work the task force aims to do is strengthening the U.S.-Israel bilateral relationship. From your perspective, could you give us an assessment today? How is the U.S.-Israel bilateral relationship doing? What aspects of the relationship do you think need strengthening that uh, you would recommend our task force work on? So unfortunately, in Israel, we have experience of dealing with uh, with anti-Semitism, not necessarily within Israel alone, but also looking at this globally, with our relationship uh, relationships uh, around the world, with various task forces, with um, governments across the globe. But yes, also within Israel, when I say that, uh, and I said earlier that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, so this is a big part of it. When we have an entity like Hamas, not only calling, but acting in the most vicious way um, for the annihilation of the Jewish state and the Jewish people and Israelis uh, as they may be and wherever they may be. This is something that we are countering and something that we are dealing with and unfortunately have been dealing with for so many years. We've been working very closely with this administration, with previous administrations, with, uh, with Congress, of course, on uh, identifying ways to, to combat, um, combat anti-Semitism. And I think it starts first and foremost with education and um, something that we're seeing in places around the country here, but we are calling um, for more implementation of uh, um, teaching about the Holocaust and teaching about the what we call the conflict, the Israeli-Arab uh, conflict, in the right way, not, uh, not in, a, uh, in a biased way. Um, teaching where where Israel is coming from, the history of uh, of the Jewish people, the connection of the Jewish people to the uh, to the land of Israel, um, because this is a big part of where this whole uh, where, where it all emanates from. 
um, understanding the, the background, understanding the history. And then we can, we can move on to the next part, which is also actually the enforcement of, uh, unfortunately, where there are acts of anti-Semitism, to act on it. To act on it first and foremost in prevention, but then afterwards to act on it on, um, on uh, dealing with anti-Semitic incidents. And dealing with it means not just apprehending those who've uh, perpetuated the, uh, the events, but also to make sure that the public know what happened to those people who acted as anti-Semites uh, anti around the country. So you would say education and uh, enforcement of the law. Um, but I want to come back to, to the question again about the U.S.-Israel bilateral relationship. If you could tell us what you think, how is the U.S.-Israel relationship doing today as we speak, and what do we need to do to further strengthen the relationship? Do, is Israel looking for more immediate action from Congress right now on the Israel aid bill? Um, is there more that the executive branch could be doing in supporting the war effort? What, could you tell us a bit your thoughts on that? Surely. So I will say that there is a huge, huge amount of appreciation in Israel for the support that we have received ongoing, of course, but even more so after October, following October 7th from the president um, through all the executive branch on the Hill, both sides, um, and we're making a point of also being bipartisan, of course, even here at Heritage. Um, it's something which is um, heartwarming in so many ways. The military presence that, we, uh, that we've seen, whether it's in the Mediterranean, whether it's in um, the Red Sea, the Gulf, um, statements coming out, all these show the very, very strong support to Israel and again, calling it out in a very, very clear way of this is an act of terrorism against Israel. Any further acts that, uh, and, um, and remarks that we, uh, that we can receive from here, saying and stating Israel's right for self-defense, denouncing Hamas, calling out against terrorism, these are, these are statements that are already coming out, have come out, and we're looking for them to, to continue in the best way, in the best and strongest way possible, not just for the uh, sense of security from, uh, for Israel, which is great, but it's even more so to send a very clear message of deterrence to, uh, to all the foes out there. First and foremost, of course, to Iran um, and to its proxies around, around the region and globally. So these are things that we are doing, we're seeing, and uh, we're just uh, looking forward to seeing and having much more of this when it comes to the Israel-US uh, relations. And as you know, there is a very close relationship and interaction going on just the other day, another conversation between the president and the prime minister. We've had uh, visits of the secretary of state, secretary of defense, national security advisor, of course, the visit to the president and ongoing visits by members of Congress, again, from both sides, um, and legislations coming out here on the Hill, not only on uh, anti-Semitism, we've seen already two of those, but, but many more, many more so. And, uh, and of course, the, um, the aid package, the supplemental, which um, is of great interest and need by, by Israel, we do hope that it will be able to, uh, to come through as quickly as possible. Uh, to enable Israel not only to fight this war now, but uh, will enable Israel to send a very clear message again to all the foes out there of don't mess with us. 
Exactly right. Yeah, the United States uh, polling has showed that most Americans stand with Israel, and then I think we would all resonate with the "don't mess with Israel," but also "don't mess with the United States." Um, so we'll we'll hope for continued uh, strong support of the state of Israel from our government. Um, Eliav, you mentioned just just a moment ago um, Holocaust education. After the Holocaust, it took some years for those who seek to deny that the Holocaust ever took place. Yet today we're experiencing a form of denialism, that is, people who are aiming to deny Hamas's atrocities of October 7th in real time as we speak. Could you tell us a bit about the steps which Israel has taken to document the atrocities of October 7th? to distribute the documentation and how best we can all help to counter this new form of denialism. So, you know, Ellie, when it came to, to the Holocaust, um, people are saying, okay, 80 years later, we didn't live then, we didn't know, um, we're not quite sure that all of this actually happened, regardless of all the evidence that uh, that is out there. Our concern is that just a 100 and some days after the atrocities of October 7th, yes, we are seeing denials. And we're seeing denials across the globe, including, unfortunately, here in the United States. Inconceivable um, in, the worst, uh, in the worst of ways. One of the things that we have done now that we have not done in the past is released videos, and uh, basically um, a collection of, uh, of videos of evidence, of testimonies, um, of what happened actually on October 7th, of raw footage, which... Some of it is very difficult to watch. We are showing this to very select audiences um, to remind people what actually happened and to, edu to help educate people of what happened. When I walk around with this bracelet here, which says never again means never again, we all remember where the first never again came from. And the idea is that people really do remember and, um, and act on it. So we have this, uh, this movie. It's about 46, 47 minutes long of raw footage, which is taken from even from dash cams and vehicles of the terrorists, from CCTV cameras, from body cameras of the terrorists, from cell phones of the victims. I mean, there is no way to deny or to come and say that this is fraud and this is just um, um, a fiction of somebody's imagination. We are bringing out and um, we are bringing out survivors of the Nova Festival. 260 of them were massacred, murdered on that day. We're bringing out survivors, hostage survivors, who were released, coming out to the States, coming out to other countries around the world and speaking and sharing their experiences. We're bringing out mil military uh, men and women who've been uh, either attacked or have, uh, have, have uh, fought in, uh, in Gaza and so many other things. And one of the biggest things that we are doing now also... I think um, a really important initiative is collecting the testimonies and evidence of especially women who were sexually um, attacked in the most brutal manner, collecting testimonies, sharing it, sharing it across the globe, sharing it here in the States, um, whether it's here in Washington, whether it's in the United Nations, whether it's through... Um, op-eds and, uh, and, and, um, and articles in, uh, in newspapers. We're seeing this, and these things do have an effect, and they do last. And the idea is that more and more people realize, remember, 
but not only internalize, but actually come out vocally and speak out saying, we saw this, this is true, and negating any allegations that this is false. In fact, um, I saw this 47-minute video myself, and um, it was quite difficult to, to uh, watch it, and I had to turn away at times. Um, but I do know that Israeli consulates across the country and the embassy is making it available for policymakers, journalists, and other leaders who would like to uh, be able to see the evidence for themselves. Earlier this month, just need to uh, want to ask you a different question, pivot for a moment. We witnessed what many consider a mockery and travesty of justice. Namely, the International Court of Justice hearing brought by South Africa accusing Israel of genocide in its war against Hamas. It would seem that this singling out of Israel, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, makes the argument that Israel has become the Jew among nations. Can you comment on these sorts of efforts? And if, as a counterpoint, the support of countries like the United States and Germany, as, as an example with the ICJ, if this kind of support is enough for Israel to be able to push back on these baseless accusations? Yes, indeed. Another crazy example of um, basically blaming and accusing the, uh, the victim. Accusing Israel of, uh, of a genocide um, through the international arena, the same international arena that created the United Nations to, um, in light of, uh, of the Holocaust of World War II, where six million Jews were killed, murdered. This is another preposterous idea and um, act by, uh, by Hamas, in this case presented and represented by South Africa, which is crazy on its own. I mean, what, uh, what biff do, uh, does South Africa have in this, uh, in this game? Except for its uh, relations that we've been seeing over the years and uh, more recently over recent years with some of the worst actors in the world. Yes, Hamas, Iran, and even their relations with, uh, with Russia, China. Um, they harbored um, Bashir from, uh, from Sudan. Giving him, uh, giving him refuge as well for, for a while. They're hosting Hamas there as well. They are meeting with, uh, with Hamas just yesterday. Um, the, there was a meeting with the, uh, with the foreign minister, minister of, uh, of South Africa in this regard. So there's that part too. Statements coming out and the support coming out from countries like, uh, like Germany, from, uh, like the United States and others coming denouncing um, and uh, clearly stating that there was no genocide is something that we would like to see as much as possible. Yes, you can come and, uh, and argue that um, there is not enough humanitarian uh, work being done, which I would argue against as well uh, under the circumstances. But the amount of uh, supplies that Israel is allowing to enter Gaza... Um, should leave no question of whether or not um, they are um, uh, they are surviving better than uh, than they should. The claims that there is starvation is ridiculous. If you just look at the um, the loads of uh, of trucks that are going in with food supplies coming in across the Rafa crossing, coming in through uh, um, through Kerem Shalom crossing, I think can uh, can allow all this. The steps that Israel has been taking since day one of the war 
to uh, keep the um, civilians out of harm's way as best as possible. I don't see many countries or armies around the world who've, uh, who've been doing this. So any statements, any more statements coming out to, um, uh, to cry out against, uh, against these, these accusations is something that we are definitely looking for as much as possible. And I do hope that more European countries will speak up for Israel. I have. Uh, I think we have time for for just one quick last question. You mentioned bad actors. You mentioned Iran, and uh, you have worked on the Abraham Accords previously. So, if you could just give us a, a quick glimpse of the region, uh, the Iranian role in all the destabilization we're seeing right now, and the state of the Abraham Accords. Well, that that's one for a whole seminar on its own. But uh, I'll try. Uh, I'll try in a nutshell. Um, you know what? I actually start with uh, with anti-Semitism or com combating anti-Semitism. In a way, as a result, it was par part of the practicalities coming out of the Abraham Accords. The United Arab Emirates have now integrated as part of their education system um, the teaching of the Holocaust, um, something which did not appear in, uh, in the past. And we're seeing this in other countries in the region as well. This is a clear outcome of... Um, of the Abraham Accords. Now, is this everything that the Abraham Accords are about? No, it's a, but, it, but it is a part of this. And the office that you, that you were once in as a, as a deputy is working on this as well across, uh, across the region, too, with, uh, with Deborah Lipstep going across the globe, and especially in the Middle East, and we're seeing um, the, uh, the work that she's doing, both with countries with whom Israel has relations and also with those that we don't yet have relations, but hopefully will, uh, will too. I think we all, all countries in the region that are aligned with, uh, with Israel, with its um, fight against terrorism and extreme, extremism, get it. They get it, they know, and they understand, and we've been working together to counter Iran, to counter Muslim Brotherhood, to counter other elements of terrorism and extremism in the region, in the, in the region. and we'll continue to do so even while we have the, uh, the war now uh, in Gaza, Again, understanding in a very clear way that it's good versus evil. Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood uh, on the one hand, and it is also supported by Iran in a very, very clear way on the other hand. Everybody understands this. So let's fight against evil. Let's fight against Iran, fight against Hezbollah, fight against Hamas, and yes, fight against anti-Semitism, which is all somehow interconnected in the, in, in the strongest of ways. Absolutely. I think we are all dedicated to the fight against evil that uh, that has risen since October 7th. But I know together and especially with this task force, we're going to fight that evil down. So uh, Deputy Chief of Mission of Israel to the United States, Elia Benjamin, thank you so much for this conversation with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Elia. And uh, it's my honor to invite uh, Pastor Mario Bromnik to join us. Thank you so much. At this time, uh, we are very honored to have um, uh, remarks uh, via video from a dear friend of ours, Ambassador David Friedman. Ambassador David Friedman served as a senior advisor and ambassador to Israel to President Trump's administration uh, with the historic uh, pro-Israel and even anti-Semitism uh, movement of the Trump administration, starting with the move of the uh, U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. We now introduce Ambassador David Friedman. 
Hi, it's Ambassador David Friedman, and, uh, and thank you for listening. My deepest thanks to the Heritage Foundation and James Carafano for hosting this seminar, and to Elia Benjamin uh, and my dear friends Eli Kohanim and Pastor Mario Bramnick for your essential work in combating anti-Semitism. Before October 7th, anti-Semitism was on the rise, disturbingly so. We were observing a marked increase of violence against Jews, as well as far too many incidents of overt and covert discrimination and verbal abuse. But since October 7th, anti-Semitism has become a full five-alarm fire. Even before Israel responded to the brutal attacks of October 7th, to the murder, the rape, the torture, the kidnapping that was inflicted on so many innocent civilians. Even before that, the pro-Hamas forces were out in number. Professors on college campuses voiced their exhilaration at Hamas's accomplishments. Students at elite universities gathered to celebrate this resistance to the so-called occupation. And the streets were soon filled with vile, ugly, and hateful demonstrations that piggybacked on the violence and anarchy of other progressive movements. From the river to the sea, shouted the protesters without the slightest ability to identify either. Globalize the Intifada was another refrain, again shouted by people unfamiliar with the term or its meaning. Most of us were caught off guard deeply shocked by this anti-Jewish hate. How could people who purportedly stood for women's rights celebrate the rape of women? How could people who purportedly stood against the abuse of children celebrate when children were burned and beheaded? How could people who stood for gay and transgender people side with an organization that summarily executes them? It just made no sense. Of course, those of us paying attention may have been shocked, but we certainly were not surprised. This has been building for some time. This global intifada has been gaining ground for years on college campuses, in progressive confabs, and in organized movements like Black Lives Matter and Defund the Police. The key word here uh, among all these groups as they use it is intersectionality. The world is said to be made up of two components, the oppressed and the oppressors, those of color, those who are white, those in power, those who are not. No nuance, no context, no excuses. If you are on the wrong side of the identity spectrum, you are guilty. And Israel, of course, is on the wrong side, according to these groups. It's on the wrong side of this identity calculus. Actually, unfairly so. Israel's not a white country. Around half its population are black or brown. Israel also is a minority. It's a single Jewish state surrounded by nearly 30 Muslim nations. And Israel, unlike its neighbors, affords equal rights to all the minority groups for whom the progressive left fights so passionately. It doesn't matter. All these groups have targeted Israel and the Jewish people because that's where the money is. Anti-Semitism pays. Let's face it, 
universities get massive donations from those opposed to Israel. Professors get tenure by standing against Israel. It's almost impossible to get tenure if you stand with Israel. BLM extorts money from corporations who fear boycotts. It is a cynical and hypocritical dynamic that puts Israel and Jews within the crosshairs. I don't want to minimize anti-Semitism on the right. Neo-Nazis are despicable and condemnable, but they are easily identifiable and they have not achieved, thank God, any or much institutional backing. I and many of my colleagues have been warning for years about anti-Semitism on the left. It has infiltrated and insinuated itself into the halls of the Ivy League in corporate America, along, of course, with the UN and the, EU, and the EU. And it has achieved extraordinary power. You can walk into a cocktail party in Manhattan and spout Nazi rhetoric, and you'll be shown the door. But if you express the conviction that Israel should not exist, you will probably be poured a drink. That's the difference, and that's the danger of progressive anti-Semitism. And many organizations are now coming to this realization. Unfortunately, they're coming, into it, they're coming to it far too late. What can we do now? I'm not a strong proponent of trying to change the hearts and minds of anti-Semites. I'm not sure that they are possessed of either. From my perspective, uh, and I know, you know everyone listening is thinking about this, coming up with their own ideas, and everybody should really think hard, and I, I encourage all good solutions. Here are my top four for what it's worth. Number one, take away their money. Hate groups must lose their tax-exempt status, and universities that don't protect their students should lose their government funding. Take away their money. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's questioning of the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn was seen one billion times, and it shocked many people. The political climate right now is ripe for us to do much more. Number two, beef up law enforcement on federal, state, and local levels. Anti-Semites, especially those who engage in violence or intimidation, they must be caught, they must be punished, and ultimately the movement must be deterred. Right now, it is open season on Jews. There are no real consequences to the worst of anti-Semitic behavior that has to change. Number three, create consequences to elite students who support Hamas. If they lack the judgment and the character to condemn Hamas, they are unfit to be employees of serious organizations. Don't hire them. And finally, encourage everyone to read the Bible. The Bible still sells more than 2,000 copies every hour, and it presents the best blueprint for a moral and meaningful life, as well as the ultimate basis for a Jewish state of Israel. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. May God bless America. May God bless Israel. Thank you. Thank you. 
Good morning. I'm uh, Jim Carafano. I want to thank uh, the ambassador for his remarks. Uh, and I also want to thank all the many organizations and individuals that are participating in the National Task Force and, and say we are an open tent. We are excited to have more people join us. So if you are interested, either online or, or uh, you can re reach out uh, at Heritage and, and let us know. And you can help us as well. Um, so when they publish the link of the event today, which should be uh, tomorrow, please share it with others because we'd love to add to the ranks of, of who we are. Um, I confess, I'm a huge fan of the Game of Thrones. The, I, I, the, particularly for the guys, you know, for the, the ones that stood on the Northern Wall, that, that stood there for hundreds of years defending against this unseen enemy in, in frozen weather. I mean, what a symbol of kind of, what a notion of kind of courage and fortitude and tenacity. And I feel ashamed. I, I feel ashamed because I feel like we've abandoned our wall and we just let the White Walkers come in. I, into, and, I, and, and it's, we cannot tolerate that anymore. It is time to stand up. Not in America and not on our watch. So there are two really important components uh, to the task force. One is the bilateral relationship of the United States and Israel and the important moral and powerful force that that is in the world. And so that's an important issue for us. And we really appreciate the DCM and his comments that really kind of uh, emphasize that component. And the other is cleaning up our own backyard and this horror show of, that is really destroying the, the fabric of morality in America. And so to, to give you a flavor of that, um, I've asked representatives from some of the working groups uh, focusing on the key areas of the task force to join us on stage and to talk about a couple of things. One is in these different areas that we've kind of identified as, as key, really key issues that, that need to be addressed, what are they seeing? You know, what is the task force seeing? Um, and, then, and then talk a bit about what are the, the key steps that we need to um, take. And it's interesting to hear Ambassador Friedman, because they didn't, you know, practice this. But there's a, you'll, you'll hear, I think, a lot of, of um, commonality in some of those uh, ideas. So um, I'm going to ask them to come up. I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves very briefly and then kind of talk about their area. And, and, the, and then we're going to have a conversation among the group, which I think you'll find quite fruitful and helpful. So can I get the panel to step up to the stage here? So, Tevi, I, th I think we're actually going to start with you, um, which is maybe maybe my favorite uh, topic area. As when we were describing, when we brought the task force together and we started the conversation about, it's not just a bunch of people to get together and talk about you know how bad this is and how good we are for hating it, but this has to be an organization which which is which is fighting back against this. And so the first kind of critical issue is to kind of say, well, where, you know, where should we fight? Because good armies don't attack everywhere all the time. They attack in the places that are most important and most meaningful and most important. And so one of the discussions was really on this notion of civil society, which kind of incorporates um, this kind of large expanse of, of NGOs and 
um, think tanks and uh, advocacy groups and all this stuff. And, uh, and and somebody said, no, no, no. He says, he says, you're not fighting civil society. You're fighting uncivil society. So I, I think that was, would actually be a great title for the, the working group. But, Tevi, let me kick it to you, and let me just ask you to introduce yourself and uh, uh, and talk a bit about what what you guys are seeing and and what you think some of the important responses are. Great. Thanks, Jim. I'm Tevi Troy. I'm a former senior government official. I was White House official in the George W. Bush days. I'm also a presidential historian. And I worked with Heritage on an article that I did six months ago about anti-Semitism, its rise in America, and what we can do about it. And so after October 7th, when we came up with this idea of doing the task forces, uh, Jim did reach out to me, which I appreciate, and uh, came up with this idea of having me work on the civil society, the uncivil society. Uh, but but I think I don't want to drop the word civil society because there are positive groups that are having a good impact on the debate. I, I don't want to lose sight of that. But what we found is that after October 7th, when people were shocked by the amount of anti-Semitism out there, that there are really three things going on. Number one is anti-Semitism had left the fringes and entered the mainstream. Number two is there were no negative consequences for engaging in anti-Semitic behavior. And number three is the people who pushed back against anti-Semitism, those were the people who were vilified. And so with our task force, we tried to identify a number of groups that we thought were problematic. Because in, in this area, you need watchdogs. You need people who are saying, hey, anti-Semitism is a problem we've got to push back against. The number one watchdog for many years has been the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL. And we found that ADL has been asleep at the switch. They are supposed to be watching anti-Semitism and calling it out wherever it is. I know Abe Foxman, who was the former head of it, and uh, I butted heads with him sometimes in the Bush days, but I knew one thing about him. He was always going to call out what he saw as anti-Semitism. And ADL in recent years has not been doing that. Now, thanks to some pushback after October 7th, I think they're slowly moving in the right direction. So it, it, for um, uh, under Jonathan Greenblatt, it's largely been an organization that just pushes left-wing causes instead of fighting anti-Semitism wherever it is. And I think they're kind of getting the message now that there's a problem. Another group is the Southern Poverty Law Center, which originally did good work calling out neo-Nazis in the 70s. And now they basically just call out anybody who disagrees with them, anyone on the right, and they, and they vilify those people. So that, that's another watchdog that isn't doing the job. And then another group we identified is CARE, uh, the Committee on American-Islamic Relations. And anytime somebody calls an, an, out anti-Semitism, which, as has been pointed out multiple times in this conversation, Jews are 2% of the population and 60% of hate crimes are directed towards Jews. But anytime somebody points out this, CARE says, oh, Islamophobia, we've got to conflate Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Well, no, they're different issues, and anti-Semitism is a much bigger problem in American society. I don't understand why the Biden administration included CARE as part of the conversation on anti-Semitism when the Biden administration put out their anti-Semitism plan, but I, I think uh, they've put they've slowly retreated away from that, but I think that was a problem. And then you have in terms of uh, the Jews who and pro-Israel advocates being vilified, you have organizations like uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP, who intimidate Jewish students on campuses. I'm all for protest. I think protest is uh, one of our First Amendment rights. But protest does not include defacing government property, tearing down American flags on Veterans Day, intimidating students who not only just have a different perspective from you, but are just a different religion from you. 
And so I think some of these groups have been very problematic. And I think what we need to do and what we're trying to do with our task force is to push anti-Semitism out of the mainstream and send it back to the fringes. Second of all, protect people who call out anti-Semitism and say, hey, there's a problem here, and let those people speak freely without consequence against them. But at the same time, we want consequences on people who engage in anti-Semitism. So we need to re-energize the watchdogs. I think there is some hope for, uh, for ADL. I doubt there's hope for um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, but maybe we can encourage ADL to move in the right direction. I think we need to work on disclosure so we know where the funding is from these organizations, what's going on, and what kinds of activities they're engaged in. Uh, number three is we've got to push this IHRA definition so people who are in law enforcement, whether at the Department of Education or the Department of Justice, they know what anti-Semitism is so they can act against it. And I think that's extremely important. Also, one of the members of our task force works with Christian Broadcasting. I'm skeptical about the mainstream media and their willingness to partner with us on this. But Christian Broadcasting, I think they are a very powerful tool, and that's one of the groups we want to work closely with in terms of promoting our efforts and what we're trying to do to push back against anti-Semitism. So that's really our plan. That's how we're going about it. We want to push, um, if we can't get the watchdogs who were doing the job to do the job, we want to push alternative groups. There, there's the Louis D. Brandeis Center that does amazing work in promoting uh, in fighting against anti-Semitism on campuses. So there are good actors out there in civil society, we want to push back against uncivil society. And I just want to close quickly by thanking the members who helped me write the report for the task force, Jeff Balaban, Jason Epstein, Ellie Krasny, William O'Reilly, Daniel Platka, Zev Smasson, and Linda Smith, Jews and non-Jews working together to fight against anti-Semitism. That's our goal, and that's what we're going to accomplish. Thank you. So I, thanks. Before we go on, I, I know this is a little personal, but if you just just talk for a minute about your brother and what he's doing now and what he's facing, because I, I think that's important for folks to hear. So my brother, Gil, lives in Israel. He moved to Jerusalem about 14 years ago. He has three children who are currently deployed fighting in this terrible war against Hamas. And he speaks frequently. He writes frequently. He's a columnist for the Jerusalem Post. And he is one of our staunch advocates, one of our allies in fighting this. I feel like I'm doing everything I can on the American front to push against anti-Semitism. And he's doing what he can on the Israel front against pushing anti-Semitism. And uh, he's, he's really uh, he's someone I'm so, so proud of. Uh, last night I was at a party and I met someone, not Jewish, and I just told him my last name. And he said, oh, your brother's letter in the Washington Post meant so much to me. My brother wrote this letter about how when the Tree of Life massacre happened, there's a Catholic church down the block from my synagogue. And the people from that Catholic church lit candles and walked up the street to our synagogue. And we all met and hugged and prayed together. And it was, it was really a beautiful moment. Gil happened to be visiting from Israel at that time. And he wrote a letter in the Washington Post describing that incident. And this guy who I just met at a party, he was so taken by that. And that's what we need. People of goodwill. Americans are people of goodwill. If you look at the polls, the vast majority of Americans support Israel and hate anti-Semitism. It's these loud, loud groups that are getting the bulk of the attention, and they don't deserve it. So with good efforts from Jews and non-Jews in America, from people like my brother in Israel, with people who support Israel and Jews around the world, we will win this fight. Well, thank you for that. And, and he and his family are in our prayers um, every day. So I want to 
go and talk about um, legislation and litigation. So the task force is a very broad uh, and and not um, all the members of the task force are involved in lobbying or or grassroots mobilization or litigation. But it's but understanding that landscape and how it impacts this fight is very very important. So let me kick it to you. And thanks, James, and thanks to Heritage for for hosting us today. Uh, thanks to the Legislation and Litigation Working Group and Co-Chair Mara Bromnik. Um, it's been a real privilege to work together. I'm Jonathan Pidlujny. I'm the Director of Higher Ed Reform at the America First Policy Institute. My background is as a college professor. I taught political science for ten years, did some university administration, and was VP of Academic Affairs at the American Council of Trustees and Alumni until about a year ago. Uh, so we've identified five goals and several sol solutions or strategies under each. Some are quite well developed, some are in development. And so I just wanted to outline some of the, pro the most promising strategies we see in five areas. Uh, goal one is to strengthen executive branch enforcement of federal civil rights statutes as well as anti-terrorism laws and scrutiny of student visa renewals. So Title VI of the Civil Rights Act requires schools that receive federal funding to ensure that no person is denied the benefits of a school's programs due to national origin discrimination. Uh, national origin includes Jewish, Jewish ancestry, and this extends to student-on-student -student harassment when it's severe enough to interfere with the student's participation in educational activities. The school has knowledge of it, and it acts with indifference. So that explains, that's a description of what's happening on a lot of campuses today. So we need to bring public attention to the Department of Education's failure to enforce this, as well as the outrageous resolution times for complaints. Uh, there are 92 cases open right now, um, over half of them filed since 10-7. Um, but there are other cases going back years that haven't been resolved yet. And so we need to raise awareness that individuals can file these complaints and prepare people to file successful complaints. Above all, we have to watch for the first resolution agreement. Uh, if it's good and if it forces universities to really make changes, we should celebrate that. If it isn't, we need to bring attention to its deficiencies. Uh, second, we need to advocate for a rulemaking under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that would strengthen enforcement of federal civil rights statutes when victims of harassment and discrimination are Jewish. This was required under EO 13899 in 2019. Uh, Chairman Fox sent Secretary Cardono a letter a few weeks ago pointing out that it's been four years now and they haven't done it. Um, so we need, to, uh, we need to keep advocating for that rulemaking. And we also need to develop day one guidance documents for the next ad administration outlining what schools' responsibilities are under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and that's both K-12 and higher ed. Uh, we need to explore levers that can be pulled to pressure the Departments of State and Homeland Security to enforce immigration policies that are violated when guests engage in menacing and harassing demonstrations, and we need to be ready to strengthen those in 2025. Uh, we need, uh, four, we need much stronger enforcement of Section 117 of the Higher Education Act on foreign gift reporting. Um, this is important because Gulf Money is funding the radical Arab studies departments that are the headquarters of campus anti-Semitism. The Trump administration had planned a rulemaking that would have required schools to disclose the gift agreements themselves above $220,000. Uh, that, of course, was shelved. And uh, perhaps even worse, the Biden administration has moved foreign gift reporting from the Office of General Counsel at Ed to uh, the FSA, right, uh, Student Aid Office, uh, which is the most dysfunctional part of that department. Uh, and five, we need to plan to strengthen the enforcement of anti-terrorism laws, including asset freezing, monitoring, and prosecution of individuals and organizations involved in terrorist groups. Um, goal two, go a little quicker now, is to strengthen state application of civil rights statutes and anti-terror laws. Um, I was talking to a state legislator last week who's been working on this issue for years, and with success, right, the state has some of the best laws on the books. Uh, very strong protections, includes um, religion specifically, right, in the state level civil rights protection. But he sees little enthusiasm to enforce these. 
Um, I think what we need to do is spend a lot of time working on model guidance documents for states, right? I want a 20-page guidance document explaining exactly what uh, universities have to do and exactly what K-12 schools have to do, right, to ensure that everyone can learn in an environment free from uh, medicine harassment. Uh, we need to find examples. Second, we need to find examples of attorney generals who are enforcing anti-terrorism statutes proactively to address Islamist jihadis in the country without documentation or on temporary student visas, and we need to help others to replicate those. And of course, we need to advocate for the adoption of the IHRA Alliance definition of anti-Semitism to uh, guide enforcement of civil rights statutes. About 30 states have done this, um, and there is legislation moving in a few more uh, right now. Um, goal three is to defund state and federal programs that have the effect of funding anti-Semitic programs and the ideologies that fuel it. Uh, here, perhaps the most important thing to do is uh, to defund pro programs under Title VI of the Higher Education Act. So about $7 million a year goes to programs that are supposed to prepare national security professionals. Many of these are, are actually uh, funding the radical Arab studies and Middle studies departments that, again, I think are the headquarters of campus anti-Semitism. Um, we need to uh, develop an inventory of discretionary grant programs that are funding DEI. I think that's really important because that, for me, is, uh, is the ideology that makes people susceptible to this new anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, let me move on to goal four. Goal four is to develop new model legislation to combat anti-Semitism at the state and federal level. Uh, Representative Steele has uh, very, very strong um, legislative text in the Deterrent Act that would strengthen foreign gift reporting and restrict partnerships with countries of concern. And I think we need to develop a comprehensive approach to higher education funding reform and socialize the idea that the only way to address the root ideological causes of campus anti-Semitism is to use funding levers to force universities to focus on education instead of indoctrination. And so th this is, you know, like a comprehensive project to rethink what we fund in higher ed and how we do it. Uh, and then there are several good examples of state-level model legislation that we're, that we're working to refine. Um, and then last, I don't have much to say about our fifth goal. The fifth goal is to coordinate litigation opportunities uh, to protect victims of discrimination and harassment. Um, here, suffice it to say for now, I think we see an opportunity to play a role connecting the public interest law firms that are interested in helping those who have been victims of harassment and discrimination um, and the victims themselves. And so we're working on a plan to do that as well. Let me, let me just ask you one really short follow-up question, which is the American First Policy Institute is for policies putting America first, which I'm totally for. But why is this an important issue for AFPI? Good question. The First Amendment is my, is my answer, right? Free exercise of religion, right? That is a foundational American right. Uh, it should be something that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can protect for, for every citizen and every inhabitant of the country. Right. I mean, it's gotten just completely too trite for this notion is anti-Semitism is kind of the canary in the mine shaft, right? And it's a phrase that we use, but just like we, when we say never again, and then we keep saying never again the next time something happens, people really haven't taken that fundamental threat to heart, have they? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I mean... Those who are making it, those who are trying to drive Jewish life underground, they will not be satisfied with driving Jewish life and Jewish worship underground. They are anti-religion, right? And, and so this is not just an issue for American Jews. It's an issue for American Christians. It's an issue for American Muslims, right? Because these, the people, the ideology at the root of this is anti-religion, anti-family, anti-American tradition, right? I mean, that's what's driving this. Yeah, I mean, it's because even when we talk about, for example, Islamist groups, right, 
Islam is the Islam is a political agenda. It's not really truly a religious agenda. It's a political agenda to seize power. So, so your point is well taken that this is really a threat to not just religious liberty, but really to all individual freedom and liberty. So I want to bring in now my my spiritual baby sister. So she's not really my baby sister, but I do kind of feel like we're family. So and and talking about an issue that we've already mentioned several several times today. So over to you. So first, um, I'd like to thank you, Jim Carafano, for your dedication in fighting anti-Semitism and this commitment to organizing and nurturing the Heritage Anti-Semitism Initiative. Um, many people don't know this, but this was birthed almost four, about four years ago in your office, so this is not new, and, and it exists because of Jim's commitment and the gravitas that you've brought to the effort. So I want to thank you for this. I was there at the birth. It was great. Um, and a big thank you to Heritage for housing the anti- Although, to be clear, men cannot give birth. No, men, men cannot give birth. Men should not swim against women also. Um, I say that as a Penn alum. Um, a big thank you to Heritage for housing the anti-Semitism initiative and lending this group um, the best and deepest thinkers and giving us really Heritage's vast reach all those millions of emails and, and the ability to broadcast what we do to a, a big audience. Um, early on, and, I, and you know, many people have mentioned this, Her Heritage and Jim recognize that anti-Semitism is not a Jewish issue. It's an American issue. Nowhere is this playing out more obviously and dangerously than on the university campus today. And I, I am a reformed investment banker who came back into the nonprofit world because I, I saw the culture wars and I saw the problems. These are not new. This has been going on for decades at this point. And I sit here, now don't throw anything at me when I tell you, I sit here as the president of my class at the University of Pennsylvania. And so I'm in the middle of the belly of the beast right now, um, basically fighting the culture war. Who would have predicted that we would be sitting here and talking about anti-Semitic rallies being held in our streets, on our college campuses in particular. And sadly, could we have predicted that our children would be marching, not my children, by the way, um, would be marching in support of terrorism and terrorists. Nobody could have predicted that the Me Too generation would excuse the rape, slaughter, and kidnapping of innocents in Israel as a result of both their DEI indoctrination, and we'll talk about DEI a lot with respect to schools, and they're unthinkingly joining into intersectional compacts with others that they see, um, who all see Western civilization, America, Israel, Jews, along with others as the target of their rage. So not that our children need much egging on, but on university campuses, and I'm involved with the education task force, uh, there's a heavy dose of anti-Semitism and anti-American influence from foreigners on our campus, foreign students on our campus today. So I don't have to tell you how pervasive the problem is, but I will go through a really quick list of some of the things. I hate, I hate doing lists because they're never exhaustive, but a few things that, and I see in my seat at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm in touch with the other elite schools who've done some organizing. By the way, not enough organizing, not enough elite schools. We really do have to um, empower alumni to be more involved. Rallies calling, we, we see rallies calling for the eradication of Israel and killing Jews. Professors canceling classes so their students can attend pro-terrorist Hamas rallies. Foreign students, guess 
here in the United States, rallying support for terrorist organization, spreading, spreading blood libel about Israel and Jews, destroying Jewish property, and by the way, speaking against America also, their host. Administrations treating foreign anti-Semitic invest instigators differently, so their study visas are not revoked or canceled. Professors and students afraid to register their support for Israel or Jews for fear of retaliation from their departments, from the administration, and from students. This was, by the way, one of the biggest surprises to many people on our particular task force um, at the University of Pennsylvania is the number of quiet questions. You know what? It's like being a cons- – how many of you are conservatives and you've, you've said something and nobody reacts and then you leave and you're in the restroom and somebody comes up to you in the restroom and whispers, I agree with you. And you say, why are we whispering? Well, it's the same thing on college campuses now where professors and students are afraid to stand up and say they're pro-Israel, and so they whisper and say, I agree with you, thank you, keep doing what you're doing. Physical altercations between terrorist Hamas supporters and Jewish students, the inability to isolate an issue, um, just a simple anti-Semitism statement. By the way, how many of you hear this? It's almost like a, uh, a reactive thing. Nobody can say on college campuses we're against anti-Semitism without saying an Islamophobia also, as if they're joined and as if they're the same in degree or the number of incidents. Watching DEI officers turn a blind eye to anti-Semitic incidents because Jews are not a protected class. We are the oppressors. And anti-Semitism being lumped into freedom of speech on campus making it acceptable. Well, it's okay, we have freedom of speech, and I could go on and on. So we've watched the reaction of alumni, some of whom have started to withdraw their, their um, financial um, support, but, but that has limited success. Alumni are now just addressing what they've presided over for the past two decades, and, and finally withdrawing um, these donations. You'd think that we should take comfort that alumni are waking up, but don't take comfort so quickly. They still believe there's a strong enough foundation to rescue their schools, and that's one question we have to deal with on our task force, which is, is there a strong enough foundation, or are there alternatives that we should be looking at? So our education working group will be taking up the most important questions. First, we'll be taking up the issue of DEI, as it has provided a fertile medium for anti-Semitism. The idea of oppressor and oppressed was not just labeling Jews oppressors, putting us in the basket of white oppressors, but it's labeled Israel as colonialist and as an apartheid state. Through the prism of DEI, Israel and Jews represent so many evils that prove they must be stopped and eradicated. By shouting from the river to the sea, I assure you they are not talking about giving Jews in Israel a first-class ticket to sun themselves in the Cote d'Azur. This indoctrination starts in kindergarten now, and I encourage you to spend time talking with parents who've had their children in public schools from Loudoun County, Virginia, to Texas. Yes, Texas. We will explore the state of education beginning at kindergarten and how to empower students to control the education of their own children. We will highlight what school choice and homeschooling can do to protect our children. Three, we will explore the protecting of the American family. Parents have the right to raise their children with their own family values and have the right to prevent public schools from imposing hostile values on them or hiding information from parents. And if you doubt that happened, I have actually spoken to parents whose children have been taking for for transgender counseling without notifying the parents. 
We will explore how to prevent teachers or students from being compelled to affirm radical doctrines. And all this feeds into preparing them for anti-Semitism and promoting anti-Semitism. We will study the use of government subsidies and funding of programs that promote anti-Semitism, including eliminating or significantly reducing charges on federal research grants and urging states to reduce or condition their higher education appropriations and grants on viewpoint diversity and other public purposes. At Penn, I've been screaming for over a decade that we need to be a marketplace of ideas and not just simply a progressive factory. Um, training social justice warriors. Um, this all leads to anti-Semitism. And I will mention at Penn that the Pennsylvania um, uh, Assembly holding back funds was a powerful statement. And one of the contributing factors to having the president and the chair of the board resign. We should discuss whether we can be change agents in the current institutions or whether we need to build our own. And what does that mean exactly? And I'm going to add one that wasn't on the list, if that's OK, and that is not so obvious. But the DEI culture, the cancel culture, anti-Semitism, all of this leads to a certain amount of depression on campuses. And so I think we should look at the mental health on campuses and how this all ties together. Because students, are, students who are afraid to stand up and say, it isn't OK to back a terrorist organization. It isn't okay to vilify Jews without their fear of being canceled, then creates psychological problems. And, and, and there's no coincidence that the rise of DEI and cancel culture has also gone at the same time we've had a rise of depression and suicide on campuses. No society can, can survive this. So um, I'll end by saying one of the um, heritage scholars, Mike Gonzalez, has written two books on DEI and on the culture. And, and he points out in those books that it doesn't, this, the changing the culture isn't easy because people tend to buy into the American dream. And, and one of the successes that those who want to bring down our culture and frankly bring down our system, one of the successes they've had is infiltrating our schools and getting to our students. And that's bred success for them. And that success is bred success. So schools are filled with professors and administrators who may not or may believe in our and spread our old blood libels, but they've proved as recently as last month in front of Congress that our educators lack a moral compass and our schools have lost their way. So we have a lot of work to do in this task force. Thanks, sis. Um, let me, let me, would you mind sharing maybe just one brief story about your experiences at Penn? One brief story. Well, you know, I think that, that the biggest issue is that there's a fear on campus and there's a fear among people who sit on boards um, to speak up. And, and so I, I won't talk about what's happening now because this has been going on for over a decade. Every year there's a, a graduation that we, the class presidents, um, participate in. It's, it's actually one of my favorite days. The presidents have breakfast together and then we walk in and we make the processional on campus. And every year there's a speaker. Every year the speaker is liberal. Every year the speaker says something that is awful. Um, every year I stand up and start booing. Every year all the class presidents throw their bodies on me and bring me back down into my seat. Um, but, but they're in a bubble and they don't really understand 
Um, I, I think we've gotten to the point where we see you can't progress without buying into DEI. You can't progress, and, and they, they assume everybody buys into this. Um, I, I think that the, the most shocking thing to me has been the amount of fear and conditioning uh, people in the universities have um, to speak up and speak out. And even if in their hearts they believe, you know, that, that we may be right on our side saying, you shouldn't do this or this is inappropriate, they just, they don't, they, they've gotten to the positions they're in by getting along with the DEI and, 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 and by being quiet, quite frankly. Thank you. So now we're going to turn to the saddest and most disappointing member of the panel. <laughs> and it's not because of him. It's, it's when we had our first organizational meeting and we insisted that we really focus on, on the nub of the, and really get to the issues that were really the most important. I have to be honest, I, I was kind of shocked and disappointed and in some ways really ashamed of myself at the first issue that literally everybody in the room insisted that we address is public safety. So the notion that we have to talk about protecting Americans from other Americans who simply want to live their own life in this country, in this day, I, I guess I just wasn't prepared for that. But um, having said that, you guys have done great work. So, but I'll kick it over to you. All right, well, thank you, Jim. I'm very pleased to be part uh, of this uh, working group. I'm a research fellow here at Heritage Foundation. I focus in financial regulations. But prior to Heritage, I worked as a lawyer uh, with uh, Richard Heidemann, suing state sponsors of international terror on behalf of U.S. victims. So thanks for having me be part of this. So our working group dealing with security, we wanted to first dive into the severity of the problem. And I, I know a lot of us are aware of these numbers, but I wanted to briefly go over them. In 2022, which was, of course, before this current war, the FBI reports 1,300 hate crimes directed against Jewish Americans. And these aren't free speech issues. These are actual crimes. We're talking about nearly 800 property vandalisms, over 100 assaults, numerous homicides. And this, of course, has only worsened over the past three months. Um, ADL is compiling in real time um, hate crimes against Jewish Americans. And according to them, the levels that we're experiencing today are about three times what we were experiencing just one year ago. So since October 7th, when Hamas entered into its latest war against Israel, there have been over 500 vandalism cases against synagogues and Jewish um, property owners, been nearly 1,400 cases of harassment, which once again, that goes beyond just speech. That's actual uh, har harassment. More than 1,300 anti-Israel rallies, and we have documentation of hundreds of those rallies, including explicitly pro-Hamas, pro-terrorism content. And of course, uh, hate, whether it's directed against Jews or others, should be condemned across the board. But this myth that somehow this uh, the problem with Islamophobia is akin to anti-Semitism, the data just do not bear that out. There are about three times as many Jews as, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jews as Muslims in this country, yet the number of anti-Semitic hate crimes is nearly seven times what you see with the other communities. This is a particularly um, uh, large problem for, for the Jewish community. Um, and just to put some real faces to some of these stories, 
Uh, just about uh, a month ago in California, there was an elder, elderly gentleman about my parents' age. Uh, he was at a pro-Israel rally in California, ended up being accosted by one of the pro-Hamas rioters. He didn't make it. He ended up in the hospital and never made it out. Uh, there was an elderly couple. Um, just He died. He died. He died. He died. Yeah, he's being prosecuted now for invol uh, uh, involuntary manslaughter, and the one who's being prosecuted is uh, happens to be a college professor in California. Uh, there's an elderly couple in Beverly Hills heading to their synagogue just about a month and a half ago, and they were targeted. Because they were walking to synagogue, they were mugged on the way to synagogue. Um, just about a month ago, actually a few weeks ago, in New Jersey, a teenager, 16-year-old girl with an Israeli Defense Force uh, Defense Forces sweater, walking through the mall, I believe with her little sister, accosted, actually physically assaulted by someone, and many anti-Jewish epithets that I cannot even repeat publicly were hurled at her, just for simply wearing uh, um, a sweatshirt. And then, of course, we have the so-called pro-Palestinian rallies that have been occurring across the country. For those of us that are here in D.C. often, uh, we see this regularly. I was at Union Station just about a week and a half ago where the protesters were blocking traffic, spraying graffiti, tried to enter the premises. We've seen them physically trespass on Capitol Hill. And, of course, the media, particularly the mayor of D.C., continues to ignore this. Just a week ago in D.C., we saw pro-Hamas rioters uh, force an evacuation of some of the White House personnel, damaging the fence. Once again, Mayor Bowser, to my knowledge, completely silent on this. And then, of course, the other public safety issues with some of these so-called rallies. We've seen the airports getting into JFK blocked, O'Hare blocked. Uh, just the other day, this weekend at Ronald Reagan, they issued an announcement. There was First Amendment activity, their words, uh, and they were urging people to take the metro instead of an Uber from the airport because of that First Amendment activity. Uh, and then just the other day, uh, the ports in Portland, uh, I believe Portland, Oregon, were being blocked by pro-Hamas sympathizers, upset that there were possible armaments going to defend the brave men and women of the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, correct, forgot about that one, in the Golden Gate Bridge. So this, this is a, a, a big problem, not just with the hate itself, but with the physical danger and with the roads being shut, airports and, and, and ports. Uh, some of these uh, rallies, protests, I call them riots, they've gone before just these implicit calls for genocide. And by that I mean the chancellor from the river to the sea, which of course from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean is where the Jewish people have their homeland today, have had it historically. And when you hear a chant of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that is an implicit call of genocide because it means free of the Jews. And then we see even worse with the calls of intifada, which is the violent action against Jewish people who are living in their homeland. But then you go even further on the spectrum. We have now so many cases of documentation from these riots where people, this, this is an example from Bangor, Maine, somebody with a uh, flag for the people's liberation, uh, people popular front for the liberation of Palestine. That is an actual terrorist group. It is on our terrorist registry. When I worked uh, at, a, at a firm suing bad actors, this was one of those organizations. And you see people, instance after instance, in Maine, I have D.C. as an example, North Carolina, people have the flag of Hezbollah. They'll have the shirts with the acronyms for actual terrorist organizations, and they are 
they're proudly proclaiming what their end desire is and who they are aligned with. And of course, and that brings me to a situation that happened in the state of Florida with their local Students for Justice and Palestine chapter. I think this was hours after the Hamas attacks on October 7th. And what did that organization do? They stood and they said, we're not just standing in solidarity with Al-Aqsa Flood, which is the, the name for the terrorist operations. They said, we are part, the Palestinian students here are part of this resistance. And that's just a stunning acknowledgement of the, the, the support for terror they have in, in their hearts. Um, got pages and pages more of examples here, but I wanted to get to some of the recommendations um, that our, uh, our group has um, focused on. Of course, our first step is actually conversing with the local mayor's offices and the police departments and the city councils of communities, particularly ones in which these riots have been happening and in which there are large concentrations of the Jewish community. But uh, unfortunately, that's not likely to go far enough in a lot of these communities. Um, this is going to take also uh, our committee members and hopefully many of us here working with state legislators in numerous ones of these states. You know, in, in, in 40 out of the 50 states, we have what's known as Dillon's Rule. And what Dillon's Rule simply means is that state legislators have a lot of power if they choose to use it to force local governments to act responsibly. And in a number of these states, such as Georgia or Nevada, you have conservative, sensible legislators, but yet the city governments continue to allow these riots to run amok. State legislators in those states have power to force those communities to get on the ball. And uh, our, our committee truly believes that if we put pressure on those state legislators, you can make a difference even in those areas that are not run sensibly. Um, when it comes to these riots and these rallies, we continue to see the media Continue to even see sometimes the victims saying, well, these are First Amendment activities. Well, we need to recognize that the First Amendment does not, does not cover blocking traffic, does not cover vandalism, does not cover disorderly conduct or rioting in front of somebody's home. This is something that can be dealt with laws that are on the book if the right pressure uh, is, is placed. And then just lastly, one recommendation. Uh, we have many, but one, one last one in the interest of time. Um, if you look at um, immigration law, Immigration law very clearly says that if you express support, if you espouse support, not just financial support, but even verbal support for terrorism or terrorist entity, you are not admissible here. Um, that's a law that's on the book. And with the right administration in place, just enforcing that law alone would ensure that thousands of these student protesters that are not citizens here could be ejected in short order from this country. Thank you. Thank you, Joe Griffith. Let me, let me share an interesting fact. Of the many organizations and individual participants in the National Task Force for Combating Semitism, the overwhelming number of them are non-Jews. Um, what's interesting, and I know all these people, and what's interesting about them is, and knowing them and their backgrounds and their histories and who they are, they each kind of come at this issue in a way that's particularly personal for them. Um, so my question, Joel Griffin, is what, what has made this personal for you? I think um, I've been proudly Jewish since I, I, I was a child, but I think this has become, uh, became even more, more personal um, the, 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 last, the last few months. 
have, having friends that have made the decision to live in Israel, hearing their stories, um, I mean, following the social media posts, uh, visiting with some of them over this, this past week, um, it's become a lot more personal. I, mean, I, have, I have a, f- a friend in, in Chicago who moved to Israel, found a husband, um, had several children, and was living near, near that border area. Um, she's no longer there. That Her whole neighborhood evacuated. She's here in the States, away from the, the friends and the family she's been around. Um, it's become personal, I think, because of those relationships and those friendships that I've been fortunate to develop the last 10 years. Thank you. Thanks for, for sharing that. Um, so let me take a second, a little time out here, and educate the panel, and I'll be right back to you, so don't go anywhere. Um, you guys don't understand. I would say 99% of America. So I represent 99% of America. I'm an Italian kid. I grew up in Long Island. I grew up thinking that most of the world was Jewish. <laughs> no, I did. and the reason, the reason for that was really simple. Everybody in my community was Jewish, like, except for me. And, you know, and it was, I'll be honest, I was jealous. They had like seven days of Christmas. I had one. Um, you know, they got extra holidays I'd never even heard of. But, but and, and I, all joking aside, for a lot of Americans, they don't really understand kind of the very some of the very basics of this debate. So, uh, question for the panel: I'd like you all to jump in if you can, or if you wish. Um, this whole definition thing, like, well, what the heck's that all about? What's this definition thing, and why does it really matter? So, Tevin, you want to lead us? Sure. So Ken Marcus, with whom I know you've worked and is uh, the head of the Lou D. Brandeis Center, uh, was at Department of Education, and he said there are laws on the books against anti-Semitism, and the Department of Education does not enforce against those laws because they don't have a definition of anti-Semitism. They don't know what it is, or they claim not to know what it is, so they use that as an excuse not to enforce the law. So from a most basic level, if you define anti-Semitism, then we can have laws against it and we can enforce those laws so that people who act in bad ways against Jews and act in anti-Semitic ways that are inherently anti-Semitic and anti-American ways, then we can do something about it. I think that's one of the reasons they yeah. so what's, is so what's important. the definition and, and where, where did it come from? So, so uh, I mean, the definition is short, um, and I, I won't try to, to get at it from memory, but one of the great values of the definition is that it, it includes about a page of examples. And the examples help to make clear that uh, delegitimizing Israel is anti-Semitic, like arguing that it should not be a country, or grotesque double standards, right? That's also anti-Semitic. And so it's the examples that I think are the most valuable. Right. And again, 30 states have adopted the definition at last time I looked. Um, and, and many of them uh, include those examples. Right. And so those examples should help, you know, the Department of Education to articulate to schools what their responsibilities are. Yeah, the, the definition is particularly important in those education um, settings. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of particular examples given um, if, if if you, for instance, deny the right of the, the the right of the Jewish people to have their own indigenous homeland, that is that fits one of those parameters: anti-Semitism, applying double standards to Israel. And there's a lot that are particular to Israel. But the reason why that's important is that when you're a university, and let's say you have a pro-Israel student group, and uh, there are hecklers that come in, they try to shut it down, they try to block it. Uh, you know, a university can say, well, that's anti. That's just anti-Israel behavior. Sure, it's not tolerated by the rules, and it might not be lawful. But 
you know, this, these are just college students being college students. If you can show that that behavior and say blocking a stu Jewish student group from actually operating, if you can actually show that that behavior is anti-Semitic in nature, that's where the federal civil rights law come in. And that's where if you have the right administration, you can tell that university, if you continue to allow these students to shut down the, the, the activities of these Jewish students or create a hostile environment, then you're going to lose your federal support. And that's why that definition is so important. So, uh, please. Well, I just wanted to add one thing, and, and it's it's a really important distinction, right? So, uh, so menacing harassment is obviously not free speech. When groups' behavior makes it impossible for a Jewish student to have equal access to educational activity, that violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. But there's a whole lot of speech that is anti-Semitic and hateful that is protected. One of the things the definition does is it helps administrators to say, yeah, that may, that may be protected by the First Amendment at a public university, but it's hateful, and decent people don't say that, right? And so it helps them to be clear about what good people and decent individuals, like what, what reasonable criticism of Israeli policies are and what hateful criticism of Israel looks like. And calling that out is the very first responsibility of a university president. So what I'll add to that is um, universities, private universities, um, usually have a different set of standards for behavior at the university that goes beyond the First Amendment and actually reigns in the First Amendment. So that you have the First Amendment protection. This is, you know, state universities would and, and, and public entities would have to follow that. But in a private entity, you theoretically could say there's certain behaviors which are against our code. Um, and it's not, and, it, and it's our, and it's our behavior, and we enforce it, you know, in, internally. And so, um, one of the things that was very confusing when college presidents were testifying in front of Congress, and they kept saying, "Well, we live by the First Amendment." Well, they actually don't live by the First Amendment. There's plenty that happens on campus that's reined in or stopped because it doesn't meet the internal university code of conduct. And so I think it's very helpful to have IRA, but it's also very helpful to then to say, well, there's a code of conduct that, that you step across when you exhibit certain behaviors that are anti-Semitic, that don't meet your code of conduct. And the way that I, I put it is, um, for those universities, is the Nazis have the right to march in Skokie because that's public property and that's public. But you don't have to personally give them the microphone. And so... The universities don't have to give anti-Semitic groups the microphone to spout anti-Semitism and then hide behind the First Amendment if they're private universities. Okay, and so for us people, the definition, the IRA stands for, the letters stand for? The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Okay, thank you. Um, what's important, I think, about this conversation is it's gotten to a, a theme that we've hit on several times today, which is much of what the task force is about is combating the abuse of the First Amendment. And there are two sides to that. As, as, um, as Joel pointed out, there are many activities which are actually not protected First Amendment rights, which are actually a, a violating laws and harming and hurting people. And, and our governments, our law enforcement institutions, need to hold people accountable for that. The other side of, the, of that is you have a First Amendment right to, to say things that are properly protected in the First Amendment, others have a First Amendment right to hold you accountable for what you say as well. And, and I think it's very important um, to recognize that both parts of that are, are, are a crucial and critical part of that. And, and the reason why I wanted you guys to talk about the IRA definition is, 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 it, is it, it gets, it, it is the starting point. 
It's what, what are you upset about? What is wrong? And it's a very clear and simple definition of this, my friend, is wrong. This is what put people in the ovens. This is what allowed people to butcher other people on October 7th and other people to say, eh, I don't have a problem with that, right? Because they, because they have no respect for those simple, clear, moral, concise words. The other issue I wanted to raise to the whole panel, which is something else which has come up repeatedly, and Adrian, maybe you can start with this, is, is many of you, or actually all of you, at one time or another talked about funding. And I think that's very important because if you look at the anti-Semitism movement in the United States, it is not a grassroots movement. This is not the civil rights movement. This is not a bunch of people that got together and are deeply frustrated by a great injustice and said, let's go do this. I mean, the, the, the kids that were sitting at the, at, the, uh, at the counter at the Woolworths, right, like nobody gave them a grant to do that, right? So this movement was created, and it was largely created with an enormous amount of money and political protection. And so the fact that a number of people have kind of hit on the funding issue is if you just let the money flow, don't think that this is ever going to stop. Um, I think that's really important. So, Adrian, maybe you could lead us off, but I'd love to hear kind of additional comments on why f the funding issue is so central to combating anti-Semitism in the United States. Well, it is, it's a big issue at universities, and I think that um, whether it was the ambassador or somebody before said, um, there's a tremendous amount of money coming in from foreign actors um, and, and, and for other purposes uh, to universities. And, and so the question is, what... Can, do you stop that? What do you do about that money? Um, what should trustees be doing? What should administrations be doing? But we should recognize the fact that that the rise of anti-Semitism, somebody did a study of, um, I think it was Qatari money coming into universities, and they showed that as the money flowed, anti-Semitism on campus, anti-Semitic events were increasing. So, so there's no doubt that this is highly funded. Um, these, the, the rallies that happened pretty much right after October 7th occurred, I mean, even, even as soon as that afternoon, uh, were funded. I mean, they, they're not organic when they happen that quickly and they happen in the way they, they, they happened. Um, so, so that's one aspect of money coming in that we have to be aware of, and, and I think we have to shine a light on if it's not illegal. We have to shine a light on it, and trustees should be more active. I mean, one of the lessons at universities is trustees have been passive. This has all happened on their watch. They've been sleeping, and, and they should be more active and understand where money is coming in and how that's influencing uh, seats at universities, how that influences um, certain departments at universities. You have the Middle East departments, Near East departments, Comparative literature, surprisingly anti-Semitic. I mean, you have certain departments that are funded by certain sources of money, and, and they are sources of great anti-Semitism. By the way, don't assume your Jewish studies department at a university is pro-Israel either. I mean, I think you can assume anything anymore on campuses. So we see that. And, and there's the reverse, which is um, how much money should trustees, how much money should alumni be putting in, how should the money be earmarked? And I think it was very surprising when the Palestine Rights Literature Festival occurred at Penn, there were people who had given endowments, and some of those endowments were used to sponsor an anti-Semitic event on campus, and they are, these are highly affiliated Jews whose money was being used to fund something anti-Semitic. 
which is shocking, but it happens. And, and so staying, you know, being more involved, controlling more how the money is used and being more activist on campus is really important. Sure, sir. I, I just have a little to add to that. I think there are three things happening, right? The first, and one of the most shocking things to me that, that we've learned in the, in the last few months is the extent to which there's an association between the presence of the radical faculty, right, who are anti-Zionist, pro-BDS, and the prevalence of student-on-student -student harassment, right? Like, there's a very strong relationship between those two things, right? The problem is that those faculty are being funded by foreign gifts and by the government under Title VI of the AGA. So we need to shut that off. The second thing is students are coming to elite university campuses from the Middle East, and their purpose is to change the culture, right? They get scholarships from the Muslim Brotherhood to do that, right? And so you need to, you need to end that, or you need to somehow crack down on that. Um, like one idea is on my reading of the N-400 form, which you have to fill out for naturalization, you aren't eligible to ever become a citizen if you've been a, uh, you know, an SJP member and some of the other groups, right? Because you've advocated to suppress others' First Amendment free exercise right, which is a question on the N-400 form. There are a couple of others that you couldn't answer truthfully if you'd been a member of SJP. So you need to get at those, those radical student activists. And then the third thing is the tens of millions of dollars being spent on DEI, right? Like DEI, as, as others have explained on this panel, it primes people to view others and make snap judgments based on identity group. And that's why you have a whole bunch of people who probably don't, couldn't find Israel on a map who are all of a sudden rallying for Hamas, right? Because they've been primed to always believe that whoever is oppressed is in the right, right? They're, they're the virtuous ones, right? And so, you know, University of Michigan spent $75 million on DEI in a five-year period, and they did student surveys about uh, inclusivity and belonging at the front end and the back end, and guess what? They fell, right? They fell sharply, right? And so we need to defund DEI. Two states have done it in a comprehensive way. Now they're trying to enforce those laws, uh, but we need to, to help others to replicate the, the Florida and Texas reforms. I have an anecdote uh, on this. A few years ago, just to give you an idea of how organized this, uh, this movement is, I went undercover at an event that was being hosted on the campus of Harvard University by a group called Open Hillel. And this organization, uh, they were targeting student leaders, not just at Harvard, but from across the country. They flew in hundreds of student leaders from across the country, from different student governments, and they had a combination of professors that were instructing these roughly 300 young adults. It was a combination of avowed Marxist professors and Middle Eastern um, uh, professors as well, some of whom were, were Jewish. They were actually uh, targeting students who were planning to go into diplomacy and also a number of students that were going to education, including Jewish education at numerous left-wing synagogues. And I know that was just scratching the surface. That was one conference amongst... I'm sure many dozens that were held that year. That's where the money's going. Could I, yeah. I can, I'm sorry. Could I just add one thing? I, I actually took Arabic at Columbia, and there is a, a recently after 9/11, and and there is a book that's used called Al Kitab at all the universities, um, all the elite universities, and in that book, by the way, you learn how to say my father is a translator at the United Nations and my uncle is an officer in the Jordanian army. Before you learn how to say, please, can I have a glass of water? Um, and and the, the point of the book, as um, somebody explained to me, was, and, and Israel kind of doesn't exist on the map. It, it's Israel while Palestine, Israel and Palestine on the map in the book. 
And this is used by everybody who studies Arabic in this country. And, and the point of the book, and I think the point of what happens in a lot of our Middle East departments and in universities, is Egypt is the culture, Islam is the religion, Palestine is the cause. And this goes through all the, when you study language, you study culture. And so this is an example of what happens at our universities where you would not know otherwise, that, they, that slowly you're being inculcated into this Palestine is the cause, Israel is the enemy. Sorry. Yeah, this inculcation is extremely problematic. It takes place over a long time. As I've said before, the majority of American people are not with these radicals who hate America and hate Israel and hate Jews but they are getting increasing purchase in the institutions that help drive our culture. And there's a tremendous book that I would recommend by a guy named Josh Moravchik. It talks about how, how, how David became Goliath. It's about how Israel was one of the most admired countries in the world in 1967. And now as a result of a concerted 50 plus year effort, Israel is the most vilified country around the world. And it doesn't happen by accident. It helps because it happens because these funded organizations make a real strategic effort and they try to change how the culture works and how people view things from these commanding heights. And it's a very depressing book, but I took an optimistic message from it, which is if they can make this plan over a 50-year period to vilify Israel, then we can make a plan to counter it and to turn things around in the right direction. So, you know, the, I think the important takeaway from this conversation is, is if you care about the funding issue, there are kind of multiple pathways, right? Some of it's U.S. government funding, some of it's state funding, some of it's foreign funding, and, and some of it's philanthropic funding, some of it actually coming from the Jewish community itself. And so you need a multiple, multi-phased way of, of going after this. So I, I have another question. Um, for the panel, uh, Jay Green, a colleague of mine at Heritage Day, has done some awesomely tremendous work on the DEI issue and ESG and, and also on anti-Semitism in the United States. Um, and, we, and we wrote this article, and, and it wasn't political because we're not political. Um, we're nonpartisan. Um, but, but it's not about politics, not what, about what political party you belong to. It's ideologically how do you view yourself in America and the worldview. And our argument was, you know, if, if you actually look at the American Jewish community, um, it's it's increasingly liberal, um, and increasingly many of the people that are marching in the street uh, in support of Hamas are are people that 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 they would these are the people I go to cocktail parties with, and and part of the argument we try to make in there is is in many ways are aren't your core beliefs much more akin to what American conservatives believe. Than what, than what a lot of American leftists believe, and and I and I raise that point in part because, and to be fair and and humble and a little bit humiliated, um, it, it's actually difficult to honestly say that American conservatives have had combating anti-Semitism as a as a mainstream issue. If you go to conferences, and it's just it's not necessarily something that, and it's but it's not because conservatives you know are fine with anti-Semitism. Um, they're not because it's a threat to religious liberty and, and, and all the other kind of things that, that we hold dear. It's, it's not because they don't care about Israel because I actually I would argue today support for um, recognition of the importance of the U.S.-Israeli bilateral relationship is, is, is a pillar of, of modern um, you know, conservative uh, uh, agenda. It's, it's, I think uh, – and, and that's, so that's my question is why aren't – American, or why haven't American conservative, the American conservative movement, 
really been at the forefront of leading this? And why aren't American conservatives really making the case to all Americans to say, you need to look into your heart and dis- and really decide, as, as we look at a country which has two very different visions taking us in two different directions, you have to look into your heart and really decide, where does your heart really belong? Let me take this on, and I don't think you should feel at all humiliated or concerned about uh, where you've been, because 20 years ago, anti-Semitism was not such a big problem in America. So we have seen the rise of anti-Semitism in the 21st century, and now good institutions like Heritage and, and people like yourself are taking steps to address it. But it's not like 1995, this was the biggest issue that we, were, we should have been worried about. And in fact, I start my article in National Affairs that you, you guys helped me with, with an incident from when I was in the Bush White House. And I had a meeting in the West Wing with Jay Lefkowitz and Elliot Abrams, the three of us, sat down to talk about the issue of anti-Semitism when there were some disturbing trends after 9-11 that, that we were worried about and led to the meeting. And we tried to discuss whether we should have some kind of George W. Bush administration initiative to fight or combat anti-Semitism from the federal level. And after extensive discussion, we decided we shouldn't because it wasn't that big a problem then. Now, I also, in that article in National Affairs, revisit this issue. And I say now, 20 years later, you bet we should do it because it's a much bigger problem today. So I actually want to laud conservatives for looking into the issue now, standing at the forefront with Jewish Americans and saying, we're going to stand against anti-Semitism because it's against everything we as conservatives stand for. I guess I would say one of the reasons that we were maybe late, if we were late getting to it, late getting to it, and you know, an FBI has been working on this for over a year now, right? And um, so it's not, you know, it's not a brand new interest for us. But I, I would say part of the reason for that is that the problem is most apparent in the most liberal places, right? They're, the problem is not apparent in the places that we spend most of our time. And all you have to do is look at the excellent reports that have been, that have been put together. Um, identifying the campuses with the the most the highest number of instances, and they're all in the Northeast in California, right? And so, so it's it's been a problem that's been apparent to those, who, most apparent to those who live in these places. Uh, for I, I, you know, I won't speak for Jay Green, but he's been writing about this for years. Uh, I started to see it because I spent a lot of time on university campuses, right? And so that's the place where it sort of became apparent to me that that, that something really pernicious was happening. And I think it has very deep roots. The the roots I think go back decades. But I think it exploded. It started to explode to the fore just a few years ago. I don't think you're late at all. I think it's it's um, the opposite, which is I'm so thankful that Heritage has assembled this national task force. You know, El Al's the national airline of Israel and has to fly to Israel. But United doesn't, and they do. And I'm so thankful that United does. And uh, there are Jewish organizations that take up anti-Semitism, and they're Jewish. You kind of expect it. And the fact that Heritage has assembled this group and, and, and has assembled a group um, that's primarily not Jewish to take up this issue, I'm, I'm just particularly thankful that you're doing it. Do you have a, do you have a quick thought? Okay, I would, because I want everybody um, here and in our huge online obvious audience, and I really want to thank for the people that tuned in online. It's The response has really been incredible, and we're just so thankful and appreciative. But I, I would hope you all would stay with us for, for just one more bit, which I really believe is the most important part of this in, entire event. And so I want to ask uh, our, our other uh, co-chair, Luke, to come to the stage and lead us in which what I think is, is the most important thing we're going to do today. So Luke. 
I mean, you guys can. One week. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for Heritage Foundation and the other task force chairs for the opportunity to to close this in prayer. Before I do, let me introduce myself. I'm Luke Moon. I am deputy director of the Philos Project. I don't think I had a Jewish friend until 2011. So I've not been in this space very long with Israel the first time in 2012. I, I'm deputy director of the Philos Project. Um, I've been to Israel twice since October 7th. The first time was with a famous Christian podcaster, and the second was uh, just a couple weeks ago with former Vice President Mike Pence. It was an incredible opportunity, but also tragic. There is a, you know, in a sense, there is a world before October 7th and a world after October 7th. And I'm so pleased that we have this opportunity to all join together in this moment. Uh, I'm thankful for the other task force chairs, Mario, James, and Ellie, for all their encouragement in this effort. Um, this is a civilizational moment we are in. Uh, the spirit of Amalek is, is aroused once again. And I think uh, what has become very clear to me over the last uh, several months has been uh, that Western civilization and civilization in general uh, is derived from the blueprint that was given first to the Jewish people and then to the rest of the world. One of the verses that I've held on to greatly over the last uh, several months has been out of Isaiah in the second chapter. It says, the nations will go up to the mountain of the Lord and they will learn of the God of Jacob. And then it says uh, that the word will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord, to the ends of the earth. And I think that is, that is what we are seeing, the civilization, those nations that have understood that the blueprint uh, given by God on Mount Sinai is for the whole world and is, is, it is civilizational. In the New Testament, St. Paul writes that the root uh, sustains you, you don't the root sustains you you don't sustain the root he's talking to gentiles there and I, i'm one i'm i'm have the opportunity now to know a lot of jews and it's an opportunity to stand once again in friendship and solidarity every chance i get and there's been a lot of chances recently and i hope people who are watching online and people in this room will recognize that it is important now more than ever that we stand together in friendship and solidarity. A civilization is a choice, and it is a choice that we make going from here. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to join together. We recognize that you are doing something great in this world, that you have a plan of restoration of all things and all people. Lord, I pray that as we go from here to this out from here that we will take this spirit with us, your spirit, and that we will join forces together to challenge all the enemies of God and all the enemies of his people. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray this in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, and also I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.